Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined today by an entire like cadre of nerds. It's fantastic. Uh, in my lower left, I had Natasha Mascarenas. Natasha, hello. How is the freezing cold bay? I have been warmer before, but I'm so happy to be back in San Francisco. Like my heart is warm enough, so I don't need to be actually warm. No, I'm I'm very very jealous. I think I'm coming in September, and I can't wait. We also have Danny Crichton joining us for a rare Wednesday episode. Danny, hello. <laughs> I, I have been very absentee because I just don't show up anymore. I know we've noticed. Everyone's noticed because you don't show up, and it makes us all very very sad. We miss you. We do. Uh, and we also have a special guest today coming from Forbes, a senior editor and one of the founders of the Midas Touch newsletter, Alex Conrad. Say hello. Hey, thank you guys for having me. Yeah. And we have you on today because we have a, a theme, as we always do on a Wednesday. And the theme this week is the explosion in venture capital rounds and activity, the imbalance between number of rounds and then folks who write about them, which is why Conrad is here. And also at the end, Natasha's going to talk a little bit about how to make your rounds stand out. And that's the goal today. But we're going to start with some data. We're going to do a dive into the Q2 VC landscape. Danny Crichton, tell us some huge numbers so we can all go ooh and ah. Yeah, so uh, last quarter we had about 12 funding rounds were announced, um, which was up 20% uh, from the 10 <laughs> rounds announced last year. Uh, I'm kidding. So CB Insights and FactSec gave out a, a bunch of new data. So in quarter two of, of this year, there was $156 billion of venture capital fundraised, up from $60 billion in the same period last year. 157% increase. And that was across 7,700 and change rounds in the quarter, which is an all-time high for 90 days worth of fundraising, closing in on 10,000 rounds a quarter. And so when it comes to fundraising news and stuff like this, I mean, we've all seen it in our inboxes is expanding rapidly. This is insane in terms of just high-level numbers. It's even more crazy than that. There was something like 130, 140 new unicorns minted in Q2, which is more than one per day. And it's you know, it's, just, it's, it's an insane amount of activity. And I'm even starting to fall behind on, on IPOs. And there's not even that many of those in, in contrast. I mean, Conrad, this is the busiest I've ever seen it. Curious what your impressions are given your history of covering money in the tech space. Yeah, you know, I've been doing this for 10 years now. And I, I feel like it's dangerous to say this is the peak because we've, we've done this before. But it certainly <laughs> feels like some sort of mountaintop that we are on right now. I don't know if we've reached the summit, but we're pretty high up. It's a numbing effect, really. You know, you just wake up and you read the morning funding rounds and I just kind of feel like I've just been hit by a truck. I don't know about you guys. Totally. I mean, I'm on the earlier side of my career. I've been reporting on tech for a little over two years and it's crazy how fast I have become numb. I joined Crunchbase News and I was excited by a two million seed round. And now I feel like a 20 million pre-seed round is like, oh, OK, maybe I should like open the email this time. <laughs> and yeah. it's insane. And I know it's like, oh, we talk about the same thing all the time. It feels like but it's I feel like we have to take a moment to just be like, holy crap, it's really catching fire. Yeah, I saw a hundred and fifty million dollar series B today. I forget what the company was, but I just I was like, oh, OK, that's what happened today. Cool. And I wasn't even that shocked, which I think goes to show kind of how crazy this stuff is. But I want to point out that this is a global phenomenon. We're seeing kind of record results in the U.S. and well, India, not China, uh, in Europe, in Africa, Latin America, super, super hot. And so, you know, we used to think about the startup world being Silicon Valley and then a couple of other nerds in different places. But really, this is just, you know, Danny, like a, a global contagion uh, of funding activity. No, absolutely. I mean, obviously in the IPO space, we've seen a lot of blockbuster IPOs. Coupon in South Korea comes to mind. 
and the exits are, are expanding rapidly. So if you look at the numbers from the second quarter, there were 1,171 exits in the startup world, which was just shy of the Q1 numbers. Thousands of exits, many IPOs. We had eight above $10 billion this quarter. I just think we're hitting the frenetic peak of the startup world in many ways. Like, uh, thank you for saying that. I just that. can't think a lot of this is sustainable. Conrad, like, if you think back like seven years ago, like a $100 million round would have been like the defining news item of the week. Yeah, definitely. I think what's hard for a lot of people in the ecosystem right now is there were certain number amounts that in the past were sort of an automatic trigger of coverage and newsworthiness. And maybe it was that triple digit round, maybe it was a billion dollar valuation, or even a $500 million, $100 million valuation. And yet now, it feels like that is sort of table stakes and that is not guaranteeing coverage or even making you stand out. And people don't really know what to do about that. Yeah. And so this has led to VCs telling me things that are that are not true, but that seem true to them. I don't even mean that as a, as a, as a diss, frankly. So hear me out. Uh, a VC told me a while back that they were just that the press doesn't care about funding rounds anymore, that we don't cover them. And the answer was no, we, we do, but just a decreasing fraction given the, the frenetic pace as Danny mentioned. And so there seems to be kind of an enormous mismatch between number of folks kind of covering this stuff and the amount of activity that there is. Because if you go back in time to like when GigaOM was a network and Mashable was cool and VentureBeat was bigger and the next web was kind of in this space a bit more and TechCrunch was really battling it out. I mean, there was a lot of like, intra-blog warfare to get access to these early stage rounds and kind of break the news. And now, you know, what is it a scoop if you break a Series A? Like, it doesn't even feel like the same substance to me. And so there really does seem to be kind of a new era of coverage. Speaking of disconnects, I think one thing that we've talked about and continues to like haunt me of this whole boom is who's accessing the money and who are the people that are recipients of these insanely big rounds? I feel like I usually am pretty negative about how diverse founders are not receiving the same opportunity and capital. But I was talking to a Black venture capitalist earlier this month, and they actually said something that made me more optimistic of how things may be changing. He said, he said one Robinhood Series G round is more than all of the capital that will be deployed to black and brown founders in one year. And that says to me what a winning company can do more than what it says to me about how much total money can go towards black founders. And I just thought that that was like a better way to frame it. And I don't think it's too optimistic as someone like him who is an underrepresented person in venture. I hear that point. And I think that is optimistic if there is a black or woman led or other underrepresented led Robin Hood soon. But I don't think that we really have that company, at least yet. And, and I think that the problem with these huge numbers from these trackers like PitchBook, CV Insights, any of these sort of record numbers is they don't really point out necessarily the underlying concern there. For example, last year was a record year for venture capital, and yet women-led startups raised less than the year before. So, so I think when you have that numbing effect of the, the record numbers, and then you also have perhaps the money not being spread equitably, I think it makes it hard for people like us to kind of say, well, hey, we want to be more intentional in our coverage, and yet no one cares about a $5 million round. And if that's large for an underrepresented founder, I think it puts us in a tough situation. Alex, I'm curious kind of how you approach that. Well, by, by, by not giving a fuck what people want to read <laughs> is my usual approach to this. Like, one of the cool things about working at, at Forbes or, or TechCrunch is that we have enough of kind of a, a, a built-in audience, if you will, that we can cover occasionally less popular stuff and get away with it. You know, we're not running, and I say this with, with empathy and love to my friends at Insider, as much of a numbers-driven thing. And so I can cover what other people construe to be 
boring stuff or less important stuff in, in, in a broad sense. And I can fit these underrepresented rounds into that whenever I'd like to. And then I can just put something up later that that'll get some views. But like the point is, like we can just decide to cover this, decide to raise their profile. It does feel more newsworthy, though, that even though there's a numbing effect of the five million seed round, I do think like as reporters and just as people who are consuming this daily, like it does still get my attention to see a black woman raising more than one million dollars. And so yeah. I feel like that is like the new level of newsworthiness for all of us to pay attention to. And I know we all are in different ways. So I, that, that, that's my two cents is that like I was looking over at my recent funding rounds that I've covered and why I've covered them. And it's not because I've thought any have been like the next Robin Hood. It's usually, oh, my gosh, like this person just doesn't look like the founder that I've covered for the past you know 12 months. And, and, and they're, they're actually willing to say something different because of the way they look and or where they're coming from. As a general point about, about this conversation, we, we talk a lot about the record dollar amounts. It's just keep in mind that the number of rounds is only going up slowly, if at all, on kind of a per year basis. And there's always some fuzziness in the math around how many rounds have been kind of counted. Because just for example, earlier today, I was talking to a company and they were telling me about their funding round. And then it turns out it was from June of 2020. So there can often be this like comedic amounts of lag, especially at the early stages. And so that's why we tend to focus a little bit more on the dollars versus the deal numbers, because there tends to be a slightly more accurate representation of what's going on. So it's, it's, it's flexible, but just, you know, these rounds are getting bigger and that's kind of, I think, ruining the game for smaller founders with smaller amounts of money. I think you just touched upon a big problem, which is the disconnect between people who see these rounds as a marketing event and the people who then also say they want full context and they want impactful journalism and they want that thoughtful story because you can't have it both ways. You can't delay announcing your funding round for six months, then give someone three days notice and expect them to write you know, a Tolstoy-esque uh, work <laughs> about your funding. It's just not going to happen. Even more so, like what happens in those moments, I'm like, okay, cool. So we sit down. I'm like, cool. Was it raised via a safe or was it a priced round? They're like, we don't want to discuss that. I'm like, okay, how much have you raised before? We don't want to discuss that. Okay. What was the valuation? We're not going to talk about that. And I'm like, well, then what are we doing? Like, why are we here? My my favorite part is when people file a form D and then, you know, they don't want to announce anything for six months. And then they suddenly, you know, you, you write up a story and then they unfollow you on Twitter as like a <laughs> passive aggressive. I am taking a story from one of our colleagues here. I'm I'm triggered. I'm triggered. <laughs> Is that about Natasha? Natasha yeah, I just got followed. I got unfollowed on Twitter and actually refollowed. Have to, to close the loop <laughs> after the story went live um, for covering a form D filing. That is where we are, ladies and gentlemen. I, I'm sorry. How dare for you? Guilty of doing reporting. <laughs> I know. It's weird. It's weird. The turnaround is honestly like numbing to me, and I feel like it'll add to churn in our industry if like all reporters get to do is have three days notice and write a story. Like, I feel like we're all going to get depressed or even more depressed and we're going to lose, I mean, we're going to become cynical and, and lose energy about our reporting. And it just makes me sad. And so I feel like I'm making a resolution to not do that as much as I can. Well, I mean, for me personally, I've done two things. One is for the news reporting, I actually ask for shorter periods of time. I want quick turnarounds. So I, I usually ask for 48 hours or if not that 24 hours notice. Like I, I, I never know what my schedule is going to be until the day of. So it never really happens anyway. And then I just do longer form reporting. I mean, whether it's an EC1, Natasha, you've done one of those. I am in the process of writing my own. And by in process, I mean, there's 10,000 words that I should be writing, none of which have been written yet. <laughs> but at some point, theoretically, that cover story will be written at some point. 
you know, we, we changed the focus, right? So in many ways, like I wrote this big piece on disasters, four parts about, you know, 15, 20 companies, you know, all of those have fundraised, some of them I've covered, a lot of them I have not, but you can kind of combine them together in one package and start to see, you know, the lines from the dots. Yeah. And you also just take different angles on things like the the company that I mentioned earlier that raised last June, the, I'm going to write about them, not because they raised money, but because I just got to sit down with the founder for like 45 minutes and we just riffed on why they're taking this kind of like very atypical approach to a startup market that I care about a lot and I've covered. And so to me, like, I'm going to mention they raised some money last June, but like the whole point of the piece that I'm going to write about them is they're going the opposite direction of everyone else. And that's super interesting to me. And so like, if you, if you take, if you don't treat your funding round seriously and don't really want to share details about it, I'm not going to take it seriously either. But, uh, Alex Conrad, over on the Forbes side of things, because we're talking very much from the TechCrunch perspective here. How have you guys talked about this internally, if at all, about how to approach giving a shit about certain rounds? Well, the first thing I would say is we've prioritized exclusives. And I know that this has annoyed you in the past um, <laughs> when we have had an exclusive about a company that you tracked. It has. But the reason we do that is not, it's, but it's not really because of, you know, some sort of competitive sharp elbows. It's because we then have more control over the timing, frankly. You know, yeah. if we are doing an exclusive, we can say, hey, you know what? I need to do three more calls. I don't feel like I have the full context here and I'm not comfortable writing a story. So a company will say, we need you to publish at 9 a.m. Pacific on Wednesday. And you say, hold, you know, hold on. You know, this is not happening at that time. And when you have an exclusive, you actually have some capital to kind of push back with. I think when, when you've agreed to a group embargo, you're part of a herd and it's very hard to do that. And so that's one thing we've tried to be a little more intentional about being selective and going for those stories where we have actually some control over the process, which should sound probably automatic to our listeners. And they're like, what the heck? Why is that even like unusual? And yet that was not the case, you know, in the past. Uh, on that point, the exclusives also have the great ability to just I set the timing. So one thing that I've noticed in the last three to five months is that now people essentially seem to kind of on, almost only pitch exclusives because they seem to be, that's every, the approach every PR team is taking. And then I'm on the phone and then half the time, if not more, I'm like, cool guys. So embargo, they're like, what works for you? And I'm like, how the world has changed, <laughs> you know? We should like, have had a PR person on this show as well. I would love to get their take. No, um, you're opening up a very dangerous uh don't, don't give the email address out <laughs> no no it's equitypod at techwrench.com uh if you Send are a PR over. person and no actually frankly that will be a really fun follow-up to this we should have because i have people in comms that i think are fantastic Same. that i know and Same. i would love to uh to have them on to riff that'd be fun uh uh producer chris who's listening to this because he has to uh let's do that okay um <laughs> back to the topic let's let's turn this around and talk about some positives so what do we love to see from companies when they are reaching out to us and saying hey you know we did some stuff we'd love to tell you about it what do we want to see from those folks and uh natasha yeah what gets what gets alex start. conrad to san francisco is my oh. question because that's where he's at right now <laughs> yeah i i'm in an airbnb right now and we have our annual cloud 100 list coming out in august and so i am working on a profile of a really cool startup that will be on that list that you guys i'm sure will know well and you'll be like darn they gave it to alex again so that's always my goal <laughs> can i tell you the truth i never mind when it's you because i yes. like you I'm always oh, like, oh, you. oh, damn, look, Conrad, that's, a, that's quite the get, you know? And also, like, one thing you have is, well, I, the Forbes brand name, people think high-profile magazine cover, 
splashy spread. And like that has an enormous draw. Like if I was an executive, I would want to be on a magazine so I could frame it. TechCrunch is a blog that's going to poke you in the eye. Not quite the same thing, Danny's you know. Like, so like, Danny's like managing editor <laughs> energy uh, is like. Is that is that our uh, slogan these days? We just poke people in the eye. We'll poke well, you in the eye. TechCrunch is designed to be, or it's been allowed to be historically, uh, the slightly more irreverent, mean version of of Forbes. And I think that that is an important angle to take on the world. We should have a Forbes, and we should have a TC. And uh, they can coexist. There's no need to be so scrappy. They can coexist in the future of well, not, future. Yeah, I mean, not to kiss <laughs> up to you guys back, but but I will say that unlike some of our peers who are allergic to linking to people, I actually, <laughs> I think if you went back and did some sort of forensic accounting of my articles over the past year, you'd be amazed how much I link to TechCrunch because often I'm writing about companies that you all spotted and wrote about early so I can go back and read all your typos and sort of figure out oh! whether you were right or what not. What did they miss? Exactly. Or if, it's a, or if it's an IPO, I can let Alex do all the hard work with the S1, and then I just link to it, and I don't have to do any numbers crunching. So it's great. Uh, see, this was almost an entirely friendly chat. And then and then there it is. Uh, we, are, we are very competitive uh, as a group. But we also, I mean, like, the thing is, I think the reporting community around tech tends to get along reasonably well. It's not quite as tight knit as like the Microsoft reporting world that I used to be in, but like there's not that many of us. I kind of know who's doing things, you know. It, it's it's nice. I like, like it. Yeah. Totally. I also would say um, I feel like you know if you're writing about startups, I, founders I think sometimes get scared that people are writing about startups just to expose them. And certainly, I think all of us want to hold companies accountable, but we also find technology interesting, right? And so, I mean, to go back to your original question, Alex. We want to be um, excited by something, right? Like whether it's the founder's story or it's the craziness of the idea or it's the actual technology. If we find that really boring, it's hard for any dollar amount to, to get us excited, right? Totally. I, I always say that we wouldn't be tech reporters if we weren't optimists in some way. And also there's genuinely still no incentive for journalists to take something entirely out of context when talking to a startup because it ruins our credibility. Like all we have is credibility. And I I feel like I repeat that to people when they're scared to tell me something like revenue growth, because I'm like, listen, this is such a small thing in the grand scale of things. It adds to your credibility. It adds to my credibility. And I'm not going to, you know, try and do something sneaky or do like the bait and switch because it just will, will limit my future stories as well selfishly. Well, I think a lot of folks, I mean, I understand like revenue growth. A lot of founders won't address their competition. And I think one of the things that really has frustrated me in the last year or two is I cover some sectors where there are dozens of competitors all in the same space, same customers, same product lines. It's direct competition. The most valuable thing you can give me is either A, understanding why strategically you are so much better than the others. When I covered student loans and a bunch of startups there, there actually are a lot of variations on a theme there. There are people who do pre-student loans, post-student loans. They were doing group buys of student loans. They were doing like other ways to originate loans that save money. There were a lot of really unique models. I was like, wow, I had never, you know, student loans, that must be one big space. That's actually not. There's actually a lot of different ways to go about it. The second is actually just giving performance data. You know, compare yourself to your competitors. You don't give me your revenue numbers, but feel free to give me your competitors' (laughs) revenue numbers because a lot of founders have that. And to me, like, you don't oftentimes have to give confidential information about your own company. Sometimes the value is stuff around you and, and comparing. Or just give me a range. Like sometimes I'm like, okay, cool. So you raised 30 million, it's a series B. You guys are worth probably like, you know, pre-money 120 to 150. And then, you know, I'm like, I'm like, is it more than 150? And people are like, we're not going to discuss that. I'm like, look, I'm not asking 
for your blood type and your address and your social security number. I'm asking for a business metric tied to the news event that we're currently discussing. Tell me something. And I, I, I'm just curious about this, this like default to like over secrecy. It drives me nuts. Yeah. My, my advice to any entrepreneur who's listening is to not try to be too cute. You know, if you want to stay stealthy and hide all your info, don't go to a reporter. You can stay stealth for a while. We've, we know companies, all of us know companies that for multiple years, no one really knew them outside their circle. And then they came out of the gate with a big splash and everyone was like, oh my gosh, this is so exciting. That is a perfectly fine route to go. But if you're going to talk to reporters, I think, you know, transparency wins. And honestly, any competitor, their VC or their friend is going to figure out your info, right? If someone really, really cares, if any of us had really, really cared and spent a week on it, we could find all the numbers of any given company, or at least most companies, I believe. So give that last year revenue, give your valuation, because honestly, it's not a competitive advantage unless no one has even heard who you are and don't know to look, in which case, don't talk to a reporter. Yeah. Amen. Also, on that point, like, if you want me to talk to you more, and maybe you don't, I can be pretty annoying, but if you do, you know. Uh, one of the best things to do is to have a CEO that's, um, very personable and, and, and open. Like when I talked, like for, I'll just shout someone out, like, uh, Eric Lyman from ramp. Eric's a good, good guy. We talk, I know a bit about his life cause we've, we've been on zoom a lot together and we, we, we can riff and we can talk about things and he's getting increasingly media trained as his company gets bigger. But like when they were smaller, he would just tell me shit. And it was great. I learned a lot and I cared so much more about what he was doing because I understood where he was, you know, and it's under underestimated, underrated. Totally. Uh, Piggybacking off of that, off of everyone, actually. um, I feel like my number one tip for how to get my attention or just a reported attention in general right now is like, can you talk about something that doesn't just support the success of your company? Whether that's talking about your competitors, whether that's talking about something that just now I was talking to someone in ed tech who was able to talk to me about a bunch of other ed tech companies. And I know that sounds so simple, but like that is a huge difference between what I usually can get accomplished on a 40 minute Zoom call because people just want to talk their book. And so I think the biggest way to get attention is like, show me that you are someone who can speak confidently and creatively and honestly, just like have an opinion or hot take on your sector that you're supposed to be the expert in. And I'll pay attention a lot more. I could not agree more with that. Um, The number one thing that I say along those lines is punch above your weight to startups. And so that could be a couple of things. It could be telling us something we don't know about one of the giant that you're going after so that we know to chase a story there. And then we're like, oh, that person knows what's going on in this space, right? And we come back to you as you grow. Or it could be giving us the context on what's really going on in the market, right? You know, I think founders are scared to talk on background. They should be giving us kind of more briefings on their space so that we are smarter Instead of going on Twitter to like make fun of us for not knowing as much about the space as they do, we never will, right? But I think all of us are curious and want to learn. So educate us. I think we all like that. And I think that way we trust you and we build that relationship so someone can be that next Eric at Ramp that Alex is like, I love that guy. So on that on that exact point, when I was digging into the insure tech kind of IPO and SPAC boom way before they started to all go public, I think literally every neo insurance startup CEO sat down with me on Zoom and or on the phone and just answered my very dumb questions. And I had to start from the basics and I had to really kind of and it was so freaking helpful. And I covered their space more because I understood it and I did a better job of it and it was a good use of time. But uh, to wrap us up, Danny, you wrote this disaster tech cluster of stories and I loved it because you took a group of startups 
that were doing something interesting as a, as a unit. They were all kind of a cohort and you covered it. I've done this with a couple of things as well. When you're looking for a cluster of startups that really catches your eye, what is the determining factor? I love complexity. You know, uh, in terms of narrative skills for me, you know, what gets me really excited is being able to explain something that's hard for most readers to understand. You know, the, I don't cover SaaS that often because most SaaS companies are like, it's accounting software, but better. Accounting <laughs> software today is terrible. This is two times fighting better words, than the existing. Danny Cryan. These are fighting words. People, that's not, people that's spend not a lot of money on accounting <laughs> software every year, and uh, they will continue to spend money on accounting software because they have to, because death and taxes. Um, so I always try to find spaces that you know are new. They're coming completely fresh, new markets that didn't exist before. Obviously, with disaster tech, it was around climate change and some of the stuff we've seen with wildfires, the Texas blackouts, um, hurricane season, obviously extremely intense in 2020. So all of a sudden, there's all these companies that are coming through saying, well, we actually have to respond to this stuff. And a lot of org organizations and agencies have to do it. That's where that idea came from. I These sort of just percolate. And what I would say is um, the best founder conversations obviously are news directed, but they also tend to talk about other things, you know, adjacencies. One of the things that I love about talking to SaaS founders is not about their own companies. It's like, as soon as we turn off about SaaS, they're like, have you talked about space asteroids? And I'm like, now that that is piquing my interest in a way that your your accounting software was not. What, Dude, what do you have against accountants, first of all? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and look, uh, vertical SaaS is boring, but it's important, so we have to cover it. But guys, listen, we have to stop because we've gone on for far too long. But this has been our roundtable on funding rounds and the Q2 venture capital world. Thanks to Alex Conrad for showing up. Conrad, if people want to hang out with you on the Twitters, where should they go? So you still haven't given me the at Alex account. So I'm at Alex R Conrad with a K. Um, you should find me pretty easily. And if you can help me convince Wilhelm to sell the account to me, even better. No. Also, uh, if we wanted to read you over on Forbes, uh, where would we go? Yeah, so my author page is Forbes.com slash Alex Conrad. Um, and if you Google me, I have pretty good SEO. So I'll be right there <laughs> staring at you. And uh, the Midas Touch newsletter launched uh, a couple months back, I think, yeah? Yeah, um, give, a, give a follow to Becca Skutak. She's awesome. She's my co-writer and we publish every Saturday. So we'll have a new one in uh, just a couple of days. All right, lovely. And uh, just because we're doing this, let's just go around the table. Uh, Natasha, what is your Twitter handle? Tell our friends. It's so ugly. I hate telling I people know, my Twitter handle. It's at and mask underscore mask with a C. Yep, it's, it, we'll work on that. Uh, Danny, what's yours? Uh, at Danny Crichton. Hey. All right, and I am Seagates123. And uh, with that, equity's out. Bye. See you on Friday.